Welcome to Ogilov Nanagas. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde O'Brolochon Carmody. Visit storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories, translations, and much more. If you can, please support our work by making a donation through the website. We're doing this for the love of it. Series 6 Circling the Toy. Episode 1 The Quarrel of the Two Swineherds, or Where It All Began. Welcome to Series 6, which we've entitled Circling the Toy. Now, the Toyn is a major grouping of interconnected stories and it really constitutes a tradition in itself. Its most widely known, its central story, if you like, is the Toyn Bo Coolnia, which is often anglicised as the Cattle Raid of Cooley. Yeah, but today's episode, number one, the quarrel of the swineherds, well, that's, I suppose, a foundation story. So here we have an origin story of the Toyn. In many ways, though, it's also a trailer for the whole tradition. Well, or at least a trailer for this series. so. Yes. (laughs) So here we go, the quarrel of the swineherds. Kesht, kid theatol kofor namukada, ni answer. Question, what brought about the quarrel of the two swineherds? Now, that's not hard to answer. (laughs) Yes, and these two swineherds, one of them is swineherd to Ochel Oichne, who is given as the king of the Shemounds of Connacht, and the other, the swineherd of Budov, given as the king of Shemounds of Munster. Now, just before we actually get into the story, there was something I wanted to ask. That opening question with Mm. its responses. Now, I've heard that so many times before. It turns up in a text uh, frequently, but it's clearly an oral tradition marker. Now, is it a storyteller's opening designed to grab the audience's attention, or would you say it was a poetic device? Well, I would say yes to both, really. I mean, it is, I think, a marker of a specifically oral form. Mm-hmm. And to my mind, it connected with the oral poetic schools. So if you can imagine the olive, the master of the poetic school, questioning the students and that the students have to give good answers, yeah. whether it's in a particular so meter or like this, being able to tell this very story. It is very Socratic. Well, <laughs> that's what you get with, with an oral educational system. And then if you think about it, in a performance terms, or in the performance arena, when the storyteller stands up and says Kesht, and then Nianza, in a way he's giving his qualifications. He's demonstrating his fitness to tell this story because he's passed his exams. It's also really effective for storytelling. You yeah. imagine you've got a group of people who aren't really listening or who are talking or <laughs> drinking or something and the storyteller stands up and asks a question. Yeah. Now, what caused the quarrel between the two swineherds? Yeah. And everyone's going to go, it wasn't me. <laughs> and then he said, ah, but I can tell you that one. Yeah. So it's a very, very good way to start a story anyway. Oh, definitely. And particularly with that sort of monosyllable starting off, Kesht, you know, it's a bit oh, like I was what? thinking the folk singers that you get in the pub who stand up and put a finger in their ear and go, <laughs> yeah. I, well, you yeah, know, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a signal that a story is coming. It happens in the Anglo-Saxon it story does, yeah. as well. Right, so we've identified our swineherds. Yeah, and the places they're connected with are also very interesting these she-mounds of Munster and Connacht. Now, they are specified. So the Munster she-centre is she-ar-fevan, and in Connacht, they're based at she Cruachan, And these are 
as you might expect. Significant quite places. Quite significant places, absolutely. So Shior Fevan in Munster, it's also known as Schlievnaman. Now that's where the legend of the Twelve Horned Women come from. Oh yes. I remember telling that story. Yeah, among many, many others, by the way. But it's also, we might know it, as the place to which Mither goes with Aideen when he's finally got her back in mm-hmm. their sort of third section of the story of Tuckfark Aideen. Crookan, of course, we're very familiar with. This is our local (laughs) centre, our local powerhouse. It's got its cave. It's the seat of Medivinalil of uh, Connacht. There's a lot of stories around Crookham. There are indeed. And of course, the respective kings are also quite interesting. They are. Um, They're given as, in Munster, we have Bodhav, also known as Bodhav Darig. Now, I think I've talked about him before. It's one of those rare cases where I think we do have a kind of masculinization of a female figure. I don't think it happens often, but I do feel there's some kind of masculine equivalent between mm. Bodhav Derek and Bive or Bathav, mm. which is the scald crow shape and the Morrigan takes. Well, she's a cat in my house. I do think that this is one of those rare cases, partly because... Bodhav Darig is very often paired with the Dagda, mm. often in later stories, mm. in the same way that you'd have the Morrigan paired with the mm. Dagda. Mm. In a no, lot there, of there are stories. connections. Mm, I think so. And of course, Ockel. Yeah. Um, now, he easily could be the unnamed king in The Adventures of Nera. Oh, I think so, particularly because the, the Adventures of Nera is part of this tradition as well. But one thing I find interesting is that here's this opening story for the whole Toyn tradition, and it sets up an axis between Munster and Connacht mm. and not Ulster and Connacht. Mm. And that's mm. very interesting. And throughout the story, when they talk, they talk about going north to Connacht and south to Munster. I know that we haven't actually gone into what the whole Toyn is as of yet, but without really huge spoiler alerts, the Toyn tradition and the Toyn book Kulnia is usually said to be part of the Ulster cycle. And of course, that tradition centres around the Boera, the cattle lords. Yeah. The Toyn is full of cattle raiders rather than pig keepers. Yeah, but of course, as we know from Irish mythology, swineherds know more than doorkeepers and cupbearers. These are not low-status, unskilled <laughs> labour. There's oh, something a bit the, more special. In so many fairy tales, particularly grim fairy tales, the Germanic mm. fairy tales, and actually much broader ones, the swineherd appears quite often. And he may, yes, he may win the princess. However, nearly always these stories are rags-to-riches stories. Mm. The swineherd is allowed to rise above his station. Mm. Uh, pig-keeping is not seen as a high-status no. uh, position. And I think that's because of the Levantine influence, the biblical influence. Pigs are unclean, yeah. and that's leached into uh, fairy stories. Yeah. But it's not true here. Oh, definitely not in our story. It struck me that this story might represent an earlier stage of social organisation than the times when, you know, cattle equaled wealth. Yeah. We've talked about cows as currency oh, yeah. in the past. Mm. Pigs are, are woodland creatures rather mm. than cattle need cleared land. Yeah. But pigs could be kept in uncleared, wooded land. Yeah. And that's an earlier stage. Yeah, and I think that this sense of antiquity is a deliberate signalling within the story. It's telling us that although the main point is all about the cows, that its origins are back in the time of pigs and the mm. time of big mm. woodlands. It 
marks it as an origin story and also gives the entire Tuan tradition time depth. Yeah, it's deliberately set in a mythological prehistory of the Tour de Donne. Exactly. You know, we really should return to our swineherds. Yes, we should. Now, they are named as Fruch and Rucht, and these translate as bristle and grunting or animal noise, <laughs> respectively. They, they are the swineherds for Munster and Connacht. So those are their names. Yes. Bristle and grunt. Exactly. Oink, oink, oink. Well, <laughs> sort of, mm. this is their names, at least as long as they are pig keepers. These two swineherds, they are said to be great friends and they are equals. There's an interesting comment that said in the standard translation that they each had pagan knowledge, which is in the Irish is Suthangentlich, and that they would transform themselves into every shape, just like Mungon McFeekner used wait, to wait, do. Wait, 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 stop, 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 <laughs> wait a minute. That explains so much. Mm-hmm. If they're associated with Mungon, then they're certainly no mere pig keepers. No. These are king's poets, law keepers, high status personages. Oh, I know, we get very excited about <laughs> Mungon. But there's good reasons for certainly. that. I mean, Mungon is a remarkable poet king of Irish story who foreshadows, no, 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 not foreshadows, precedes Taliesin, sorry. <laughs> Most of his stories, though, are sadly lost or have been attributed to other mythological figures, including Finn himself. Yeah. Now, if you haven't, for some bizarre reason, <laughs> come across Mungon McFeekner, then go to Series 4, Episodes 9 to 11, and you'll have the opportunity to see why this just gets us kind of jumping around the room. We didn't know much about Mongol until we started looking at his yeah. stories and went, hang on, there's so much here. Yeah. And there's so much that's been mislaid, lost, or deliberately yeah, probably by the Normans. Yes, yes. But what's important for now is that the mention of Mongon is a tradition-dependent motive that will allow an audience to expect the characters that they're going to meet mm. to demonstrate high levels of poetical competence. So you can call them gristle and, I mean, Bristle and grunt. Yes. That doesn't stop the audience knowing that these are serious and important poets. Yeah. And in fact, that strange little gloss, that bit that said they were great friends and they each had pagan knowledge, it's put in as a dot I dot. So it is, if you like, a literary gloss to explain somehow that their relationship is related to this Sitha Gentlich, which is, if you like, non-Christian sages. The Gentlich is, is Gentiles, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's a term that's used for anything that's not Christian in early Irish. And I think that that gloss actually kind of goes at the end of this paragraph. And this is interesting because the literary compositor knows that there is something significant in this little passage. And he knows that it's something to do with this sort of non-Christian power or non-Christian knowledge. is more than just trivial magic. Exactly. He knows that it's something really important. Yes. What he doesn't know is that it's the reference to Mungon that is the significant because bit. Because the central role of the poetic has been lost. Well, certainly, and Mungon's relationship to that. Yeah, that yeah. to an earlier audience, just saying they used to change shape like Mungon, that tells the audience, ah, these are very special. Yeah, originally would have said everything. Exactly. It would have linked it up to a huge body of work yeah. and a huge body of story mm. and meaning. Yeah. But the energised meaning's lost. We'll hold that thought for later. Mm-hmm. Now, 
We really should get back and tell their story. Yes, we should. Well, anyway, these two friendly pig keepers have the health and well-being of their porcine charges at heart. They really do. And very kindly, they each take their pigs to whatever part of the country has the most fodder available. I, it's called mast in the translated, translated text. Yeah. But that's sort of seeds, nuts, stuff that falls off trees. But not potpourri. Oh, well, those, for those, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for those who know their eddies are. Yeah. <laughs> now... Unfortunately, these two friends and equals who share all these resources, they get drawn into competition. And that's down to, if you like, the boasting of their respective people. Oh, yes. Our swineherd is cleverer than yours, of that sort of thing. There's this sense that the people oh, come are on, goading you could them. show off a yeah. bit, couldn't you? Curiously, Fruch and Rucht seem to be completely aware that there is trouble being deliberately stirred up between them. But despite that knowledge, they do sort of give in to this competition with each other. Although it's friendly at first. It is, yeah. The first thing is that the monster swineherd puts a spell on the pigs of Connacht, and it's a spell of skinniness. And that means that wherever Rook takes them to forage, and no matter how much they eat, they won't gain any weight. So Rook then returns to Connacht after a big feed with these skin and bone emaciated animals. And these skinny pigs elicit the laughter of the Connachta. That's where the prank sort of goes wrong, because Rukt does not like being laughed at, and so he places a similar effect on the monster pigs, and they end up equally skiddy. Yeah. At that point, that's kind of serious. Well, it's the laughter that's the serious bit, because the term that's used is tivitha, for mocking laughter. And it is as serious as a physical assault. And in mm. fact, the, the verb tivitha can mean to beat up as well as to laugh at. So They're beating him up with their, with with their, their laughter. laughter. It is clear that their powers are equal and everyone admits that because they've each put the same spell on each other's pigs and it's had the same effect. But because of this laughter, this being shown up, this shame, Bothev takes swine keeping off Thruch. And it, it's more than just taking the role from him. The verb used is godded. It's to steal. So he sort of wrests pig-keeping mm, mm. from Fruch. And what's more, Rucht also loses his position. Now, it seems to me that the swineherds have been perceived to have diminished the status of their peoples. Yeah. An ordered competition was okay, a mm. boasting competition. It's gone too far very quickly. Mm. And the effect of their sacking is that now these powerful poets are freed from the restraints of law and order yeah they're oh. free to do what they like yeah <laughs> which as we will discover can't be good so the first part of this extended post-law post-swineherd competition is that they turn themselves into shenayin which is literally ancient birds it's usually translated as hawk but it can be crows either they spend one year in connacht fighting each other and making a lot of noise and then a second year in Munster. One day, the people of Munster are holding an Oindal, which is a big kind of military mustering of the province, and they're at Sheathar Fevon. But this whole gathering is being rather disrupted by this <laughs> very noisy birds. Okay. <laughs> can't get anything done. They can't hear themselves think. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> After that, they saw something. In the Irish, Kanaka Ni. This is a very specific, tradition-dependent, mm. form-interlink mm. marker in Irish literature. It sounds Irish like literature. it, doesn't yeah. it, as well? The Kanakani. Yeah, Kanakani. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely form. I really like it. It literally means, then they saw something. But it has this real marker to show that what 
comes next is the important bit. So pay attention. <laughs> but it sounds like knocking too. Yeah, yeah, knocking yeah, and, and everyone yeah, looks yeah, up. Yeah. yeah. But very much like the kesht at the beginning, Kanakani mm-hmm. will signify to the audience, oh, hang on, there's something that they've seen. We need to listen to this yeah. bit. And what is seen is that the monster men recognised that these two Shenayan are in fact the swine herds. Then they see them in their physical human mm. forms and they welcome them into the assembly. Well, they have to at this point. They're quite dangerous. Yeah. Because their powers, as we said, have been set free from serving a king. Mm. If they'd been serving as king's poets, but the king sacked them, all this noise, and I love the translation, lovely the, distraction. Yeah, the colour coive. This will be immense. And what is being demonstrated, I suppose, is the futility of the conflict between equals. Yeah. Uh, and that comes across in the, the, the whole of Toy Corner. I think so. There's also this element that they change back into their human shapes. And this kind of proves their powers of shape-shifting. And it reminds the audience that the story belongs to a tradition that includes stories of Fenton and Tuan and even Mungon. All of these people who can change their shapes and live many lives, they are witnesses to historical time that transcends human generations. That sense of memory, that mm. they are the ones who hold the memory because they're poets. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But also that they've seen this sort of long changes in time. Whether this is literal or whether it is poetic. It's true. Fintan, Tuan, Mongorn, they all have this poetic dexterity. And I suppose that gives them the authority to create and main links between the temporal and timeless worlds. Absolutely. Now these two, in their human forms, announce that they will spend the next two years as water beasts, <laughs> as meal ishke. And this is typical of the poet. They announce what they're going to do and then they go and do it. Oh, absolutely. Well, if you're a poet, it's all about what you say you're going to do or what, what you say saying is... is doing. So in these meal ishke water creature shapes, they spend one year in the Shur, which is one of the three sisters rivers in Munster and so sort of stands for mm-hmm. the Munster territory and the second year they spend in the Shannon. Yeah they're still repeating their old practice of visiting each other's land but now they're no longer acting for the king i.e. Mm. law. Yeah for the next two years then they turn themselves into stags and they dig up each other's territory until they're reduced <laughs> to just a heap of stones and then after that for two years they become fierce warriors. Now they're not animals here but in a way being young warriors they're still outsiders or should I say outlier figures yeah definitely and the Fianna would live in the uncivilized wildernesses supporting themselves but also policing the mm. no man's land it was around part of communities. their role not to live with other people mm. but to, rather like a sort of herd of deer yeah and the young stags are always the outliers yeah. uh, living their own lives but guarding the herd especially yeah. at night yeah and, I think the fear warriors can be seen in the same way. So they fit into this set of animals. Absolutely, yeah. And of course, after that, something strange happens. They become phantoms Mm -hmm. and spent two years, boo, scaring each other. (laughs) But that's what it says in the translation. That's that's the translation we have. Now, the term used for phantoms is another interesting one, as you might expect. Here it is shiver. And there's never good direct translations, you know, for skull or taivsha or shiver or these kind of words. Shiver is definitely a supernatural being. 
It seems to have very early on been used in Christian terms to denote demons and devils. But it may have already been an extant term. Oh, it was definitely mm. already extant. You know, it's it's a native mm. term, but in the very beginnings of our literature, it gets used to signify mm. demons and devils. It seems to be an unfriendly supernatural encounter. But one thing I find curious is that there's a story which is called Shiavar Karabat Konchulun, and that's Kuhulun's Shiavar phantom chariot and that is almost like an after story of mm. the time it's sort of one of the things that happened as a result and what we're dealing with here is one of the pre-stories which are known as Ravesgelte interesting to use that term it's still it's pointing outside of this story to other related stories and are they scaring each other or are they fighting each other I think essentially they're just attacking each other or trying to subdue each other next they become dragons <laughs> But what they do as dragons is they snow on each other's <laughs> territories, which it seems a bit peculiar. <laughs> now, the term drac, dragons, again, this is very much a borrowing, you know, unlike Shiver, which is borrowing. absolutely that Shiver is a native term that gets used for more modern concepts. Drac is just a borrowing. Curiously, though, there's a section at the end of our text where all the, their names are given in all these different shapes. And it leaves out what their names were as dragons. Yeah, effectively, they're big worms. Yes, they're like the old pest, I yeah. think. Yeah. But what's interesting is that when snow or fog descends into a scene in a story, mm. it usually means a transition between worlds. Mm. Uh, that something's going to happen, that the two worlds are becoming closer and a bit nebulous. Mm. And that made me also notice that these two swineherds, their shapes are also getting less physical, more nebulous. Yeah. They are changing. Yes, yeah, from very sort of visceral animals into something a bit more supernatural, a bit more... Unexpected. Yeah, uncanny. With that thing of snowing on the land and how that shows this transition, I can think of plenty of stories like Cumbert Cunchullen, which we'll be coming to, that's the conception of Cunchullen. You know, that starts with snow on a hunting party. We talked about the House of the Quicken Trees, Mm, where a similar thing happened. And the thing is that mist and snow, it will make a very familiar landscape very strange. And when it snows, we will mm. stop yeah. and listen to the silence. Yeah. So things sound different. Things mm. smell different. Yeah. yeah, we've got another tradition-dependent motive there. I think so, most definitely. And that in, within the tradition, what it signifies is that there's some kind of crossover between mm. our world and a different world. One kind of coincidence that I found kind of curious is that here we have these dragons, these old Pest, and we found, through looking at Dinghenicus, the Pest often get the credit for what glaciers did during the Mm. Ice Age. This is a complete coincidence here, because these dragons are not actually changing the shape of the landscape, Mm. which the Matha and all the other old fish did. All they're doing is disguising it. Yeah, well, they don't stay big dragons or worms, No, they they don't. The last shape in this particular sequence is they become too derb. Now, derb is usually translated as worm, it can be an insect, but it's very specifically a water insect, a water bug of some description. And these two dorb fall out of wherever they are into two different wells. One of them falls into a well in Ulster and is drunk there by a cow. And the other one falls into a well in Connacht and is drunk there by another cow. Mm. And of course, as you might expect, the result of drinking a worm is pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So these cows are going to give birth to the two marvellous, exquisite bulls that are mm. the whole centre and focal turning point of the Toynbokulnia. So we've got there the lineage of the mother cows. Yeah. And 
other stories are going to give us the lineage of the father bulls. Yeah. One more thing, we've also for the first time got the Ulster Connacht axis. Yeah, finally it's got to Ulster. It took them however many years that is, a good decade or so I would say. Yeah, they've finally got to Ulster. This business though of drinking a worm or a little insect in order to create a pregnancy, there still has to be, if you like, a physical bull and cow mating. Mm. in order to make the birth happen. They get this double conception. A miraculous conception. conception. Another world conception. Yeah. Must be matched by a... a this world. This world conception. Yeah. Now, Cuchulain, of course, has to outdo that. He gets conceived <laughs> three times. Once he has two other world parents, once he has one other world and one this world, and finally oh, two this world. Oh, you're absolutely sure and certain. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I don't know. I... I personally think he had a lot of trouble being born but that (laughs) will be that later well the main text of our story then ends with the giving of what we referred to earlier the full set of names yes applied to the swineherds yeah and as we said their names change with their physical forms yeah i think this list is worth giving in full because the names foreshadow many themes in the toyn tradition as we said at the beginning the two swineherds are named rucht and fruch which translate as grunt and bristle. Now, surprisingly, in this final list, Fruch has a bit of a name change. Instead of Rucht and Fruch, it's given as Rucht and Runke. Now, it comes to much the same thing because Runke sort of means little points, blades of grass, so it could mm. as easily be these boar bristles. So it's Runt and Prickle. Yeah. <laughs> name for boys anyway. Yeah. Now when they turn into these Shenayan hawks or crows or, you know, weird birds, they're called Ungen and Ette, which means claw and wing. Oh, that's fairly straightforward. Absolutely. As water creatures, they are called Bleth and Bluth. Now, Bleth is definitely a whale. Bluth is a bit more difficult. Uh, the source that we use, which is Patrick Brown's Ulster Cycle, WordPress site. He's translated blood as seahorses. Would this be a, a seahorse or a horse of the sea? Well, I honestly don't know because I'm not sure where that particular translation has come from. The closest I can get is to blog, which is a fragment, of, mm. you know, mm. a shard, a smithereen. So we'll have to let that one go. Yeah. I'm just not sure. Yeah, that big question mark on that one. Next, when they're Fian warriors, they're called Rind and Foiver, which is very appropriate because Rind is the point and Foiver is the edge of the blade. No problem there. Yeah. Quite nicely, when they turn into Shiver phantoms, they're called Skor and Skiath. So they're shadow and shield. Right. Now, that does foreshadow the names of Cahullan's female martial arts teacher. Yes, we've got Skahok is teaching him about weapons. So yeah, I think that's just giving a little point there to the training of Cúchulain. When they turn into Durb, they're called Krunik and Tinnik. Now Krunik is dewdrop, which is a lovely word. Tinnik, not so sure. This is translated on the Ulster Cycle website as sunbeam, but I'm not sure where that comes from, to be honest. But whatever, it reminds me of the epithets applied to Aideen when she became a purple fly. Yes, yes, and the drops of water that would come off her her wings. wings. And then finally, when they are finally born as these two great bulls, they are called Finvend Eye and Dun Cúlnia. So that's the white horn Finvend of Eye, which is the plain of Cruachan Eye, around Cruachan, and Dun Cúlnia, the brown of Cúli. And of course, those are the familiar names of the bulls at the centre of the great story. Absolutely. Well, this piece finishes with a description of these two 
marvellous bowls. And the descriptions are passages of alliterative Ruskada. Look, there's only one way to capture that mm. poetry, and that's in the early Irish form. Yeah. It comes across so clearly mm. as these alliterative poetry yeah. in this form. Look, why don't you give them to us in the early Irish? Yeah. And then I'll give a translation of each in between. Yeah. We'll start with the description of the brown bull. Is Avlad boy in Dunchulnia? Dov Dund Dovsuk Dishgur Dundogach Fuskrach Furbertach Foronach Ilonach Tnuthach Tarvech Toiv Schleven Kalma Kovnart Cleave Rever Kendard Kosjednach Krononach Kronsulach Mungach Mwinrever Mwinilach Sulvor Shronvor Shadefethok Kotol Tarvda Tachem Tinne, Katarvige Rig, Karuather Bethrock, Kamruth Besta, Kamwilla Latrin, Kalina Leven, Katalchidis Trichemach Midaishi, O Maitha Committed, Midak na Mohorge, Ownvit na Himmerge, Makoev na Ninele, Tavan na Trevere, Ather na Morhethra, Dav Dovan. Done. That sounds really good. And it translates roughly as dark brown, bold, brown-eared, russet-eyed, wide-eyed, big-nosed, smooth-flanked, stout-chested, high-hearted, curly-haired, thick-necked, cunning-necked, many-gifted, furious, vigorous, haughty, hairy, stampeding, overbearing, lowering, snorting, aggressive, valiant, strong with a bullish brow, with the gait of a wave, with the strength of a king, with the charge of a bear, with the heat of a beast, with the stroke of a thief, with the fierceness of a lion. He would find room for thirty young boys from his withers to his rump, stallion of the fast herd, wandering fool, paragon of cattle, stock of husbandry, father of ancient herds, taller than a tree. So give us the white horn now. Okay. So Finvenach im Davshida Kenvin Kossin Croda Krochta Croderg Mar Dorotoros. Mar de Fothrita Fwil, Mar de Commilte e Gurker, Canel Dilicht Odela Cadrin, Three Mung Mathrui, Makuiv Boor Nai, Gunnervil Imthrum, Connacht Echte, Gunnovel Rusk Erke, Con Erthusuk Egne, Gunnirgla Erre, Boethgen Borgnege. Now, that bull has a slightly different gait. Yeah. You can feel it in mm-hmm. the poetry. It's more sort of sprightly and mm. slightly more dangerous. And <laughs> that comes across in a translation. That ox, white-headed, white-footed, bloody as one hung, blood-red from driving a wheel, as from bathing in gore, as from grinding purple dye, separating the orphan from the teat with his back, Three well-bloody manes, paragon of the cattle of eye, with a mighty tail, with a horse-like breast, with the forequarters of a salmon, with the hindquarters of a chieftain, with feats of sport, the apple of a cow's eye, victory wound of the victoriously wounded, bellowing a cry of reckoning, darling of the herd, a double dignity. 
But you said that one may not be finished. I don't think so, because the first passage very clearly has a dunad, which is the sort of signal within the text that it's come to an end. Dunad literally means closing, where the first word, sometimes the first line, is repeated at the end. So it begins with Dun Kulnya, the name, the Mm brown of Kuli, and then you have that Dun at the end, Mm -hmm. which shows that it's come to an end. Um, And we don't have that with the Finvenach. You would expect something similar. And because it's at the end of the text, we often lose a bit mm-hmm. of the end. But I thought this was supposed to be Whitehorn. Yes. Well, this is the thing. Finvenach is Whitehorn. And we often casually refer to the brown bull and the, and white, the white bull. bull. This is no white bull. He's not white. He is blood red. And he has white horns, but he is absolutely, unquestionably blood red and a bloody bull yeah you know he's he's quite aggressive mm. the description is quite aggressive mm. it's not sort of noble and distant this no. one is in your face <laughs> a bit like me actually. yeah <laughs> but also what i'm thinking now is that strange description of the morrigan coming forth from the cave this is the one with the morrigan and her monohorse yes yeah yeah she's coming out of the cave at the beginning of the toynbo regovna and she's described as being dressed in crimson. Mm. Everything. The crimson horse, yeah. the crimson clothes, the crimson hair. I always thought that was quite remarkable. Yeah. And having reread this and taken note of this, you mm. can see why. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> They're great poems, though. I, I really do love them. And it's a good opportunity to hear mm. what the poetry actually sounds like and why we get so excited yeah. about it. Yeah. And it does have such a, a drive to it and such a rhythm. You know, and it really does need to be heard. So what can we make of this story? I mean, we said right at the beginning of our conversation that the themes mirror and foreshadow the whole toy and tradition, mm-hmm. like a trailer or a teaser. Yeah. But can we back up that assertion? I think we certainly can, although we should at least identify what those themes in the main toy are. Yeah, we haven't really done that, have no, we? In fact, we haven't really introduced the toy and tradition itself. Yeah, so it's as well to give a, a brief overview of what we mean by the Toyn or the Toynbo Kulnia. Okay, over to you. Over to me. There is essentially a 9th century or earlier text. It's definitely within Old Irish. One of the very complete versions is from the Book of Leinster, mm-hmm. which, although it's a 12th century manuscript, contains an awful lot of really nice Old Irish stuff. And the Toynbo Kulnia is even divided into maybe 40 or more mm-hmm. sections, which are all like individual incidents within the Toynbo Cunha, and that is headed as the Toynbo Cunha. But there is also, very central to the tradition, are the rave Skelta. Now that literally means before story, as I mm-hmm. said. Now, for some reason, I used to call them Fushgelta. I don't know why that is. They are listed in one of the ancillary stories, and the Quarrel of the Two Swineherds is one of those Ravesgelta that is listed. And the language is really nice, Old Irish, in style as well as in language. Mm, it's a well-known story insofar as most people who are interested in the subject have heard of the Toyn. Yeah. But I'm going to ask a different question. What mm. would you say were the popular preconceptions or perceptions of the Toyn as such? Yeah, now it really does have popular conceptions. It's a story that I would say most Irish people have heard of and plenty of people beyond Ireland if they were to name you know an Irish saga they would 
talk about the cattle raid of Cooley. And particularly the exploits of Cuchulain. Oh, yes. Cuchulain. I mean, they're the kind of things, you know, like the, the naming of Cuchulain are in our readers in, in primary school. Mm, and that's what I was thinking yeah. of. Yeah. Or the boyhood of Cuchulain. Exactly, yeah. They're fairly kind of popularly known and they're oft cited and oft quoted, but perhaps not in the depth or the specificity that we would like. I suppose if you were to try and identify the main strand, you might get one, a battle for the ownership of two marvellous bulls. Yeah. Two, a cataclysmic conflict between the defined territories of Connacht and Ulster, yeah. which lead to both sides experiencing damage, death and disaster. <laughs> in spades. Even the bulls, in the end, manage to kill each other off and they merrily gore each other and leave bits of each other's entrails up and down the country. It's also thought of in terms of epic heroes and doomed tragic friendships. So one of the stories people might be familiar with is Cuchulain and his foster brother Ferdia in single combat where they end up having to kill each other. The story of Derdra and Naisha where they have to flee the country because of their illicit love affair. You've got Fergus McRoich, you've got Concover and his stories. You've even got Cuchulain managing to foolishly murder his only son. <laughs> it's full of tragic Gesha and desperately doomed destinies. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> now, we have called this series Circling the Time. And the, one of the reasons for that is that we want to show that it really can't be read as one story that stands alone, that being the story of this great battle between Connacht and Ulster, which is all around this cattle raid. It is, in fact, it's part of a vast and interrelated web of stories. Nor would I regard it as the Irish instantiation of a classical epic tragedy in the Greek style. No. And there's a lot more to the tradition than the, the sort of bald description of themes that we gave a minute ago. Yeah. I mean, for a start, there's not just one, but several cattle raids. Yeah. And some remain in the mortal world, crossing territorial boundaries, mm. and some are all in the Shia other world, but most they cross between the two worlds quite yes. happily. There's also repeated themes of interrelationships between human territories that, for good or ill, have very long-standing consequences. Uh, yes, that they certainly do. There's also a theme which kind of unfolds throughout the tradition of this deepening sort of disconnect and distrust between the temporal world and the timeless other world, which is where these two swineherds have come from. The Toyn stories really show quite graphically what happens when the links between those worlds are disrupted and damaged. And of course, there are also plenty of funny stories, mm. curious stories, and we'll try and include all the ones we can, and the best of them, in this coming series. But we will by no means be able to cover them all. Not really. At least not without <laughs> touching on every single story within the Irish tradition. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get round to that. No, well, we'll, we'll do well, not all best, at once. Not all at once. Indeed, some of the central stories around the Toyn tradition we have, in fact, already covered in depth. Now, Flethrickran, which is one that we really enjoyed. We spent a long time on that. Yeah, that has a lot of the same characters. It's got Melvin Alil and Concover and Cuchulain. Mm. And, you know, that's where we got a tiniest modicum of respect for Cuchulain. But the other one, which is cited, you know, named as one of the official Ravesgelta for the Toyn, is Ectronera. Which is one of my favourite stories. It's a great one. That is, you know, the adventures of Nera. And to be honest, they have had a bit more than their fair share of our bandwidth. So I'd say we want to explore some of the underlying themes and yet some of the lesser known stories. Yeah. Which are just as good. Oh, yeah. 
Now, any listeners who are familiar with the Toyn may have noticed that we keep referring to it as the Toyn tradition rather than the more familiar appellation of the Ulster cycle. Oh, yes. The <laughs> cyclification problem. Yep. And this is something we keep on bashing our heads against and not quite resolving. Essentially, the traditional division of Irish stories are into these cycles, mythological cycle, Ulster cycle, Fenian cycle and cycle of the kings. And it's just not helpful because, as we pointed out at the beginning of this story of the swineherds, it doesn't even involve Ulster for the first bit. So calling it Mm. Ulster cycle is unhelpful. Who's to blame for this? (sighs) Well, we'll find out. We will find out. It's a modern (laughs) categorisation, but it's something that we no longer find useful and we're trying to develop our own terminology. It just gets confusing and stories cross over too much. Exactly. We'll just have to make our own selection of what is canon in this context. Yeah. But one thing's certain, (laughs) Maeve, Cahullan, well, well, they're going to bludgeon their way into any story regardless. (laughs) It's very hard to keep them out. (laughs) Anyway, back to our current tale, The Two Swineherds. I've always loved this story for its charm, its high folkloric content. Yeah. And, above all, it's one of the best examples of a poetic battle of the magicians that there is. But I'm also now realising that, in fact, it does back up our assertion that the quarrel of the swineherds is an effective microcosm of the main toy story and all its themes. Absolutely. And what's at the core of the story, or the action of the story, is this futility of any conflict between equal forces and that that can only lead to mutually assured destruction. Mm. It certainly offers a counter example of how not to run a country. Oh God, yeah. You know, I don't sack the people who keep the peace. Exactly. And as we pointed out and the reference to Mungon makes explicit, these swineherds are really in the role of poets. That's why we get the shape-shifting and shape-shifting It's always about poetry. Mm, Absolutely. And as we've said, poets are the diplomats. They get to cross over all the boundaries and the borders between territories and have these diverse linguistic tools with which to do this. These linguistic tools that work over time and space. They know the histories. They hold the memories. Exactly. And another role of the poets, or maybe a connected role, is to keep the paths between the worlds as well as the neighbouring territories, Mm. open and working and active, Mm. as it were, maintaining the flow of that word we often use for the rightness of things, natural justice, court. And if that stops, it's like cutting off the power. And uh, the pipelines are blocked. Yes. Nothing's getting through. Yeah. And from that point of view, it's not surprising that this battle is over cows. As we've seen many, many times before... Cattle, as well as representing wealth, have a deeper connection to the fertility and the health of the land. And these are gifts from the other world. I suppose you could call them milk pipelines. Yes, definitely. (laughs) The friendship and parity between the two swineherds gets a lot of emphasis. And it's only when enmity and dissension among their peoples prevents their friendship from remaining cooperative that the problem starts. Yeah. And the theme plays over and over again throughout the whole Toyn stories. Exactly, yeah, and ad nauseum. Let's just remember that there's also this wonderful element of that woodland context, and that suggests an ancient origin for the story. These Mm. pigs are very much creatures of the the wilder woodlands and foraging, so they are the source of wealth in a pre-clearance, a pre-agricultural society. What's interesting is that the swineherds themselves actually evolve through this shape-shifting. Same process. And they end up as bulls, and it kind of 
parallels a societal change yeah. in the way that life is structured. So even if the story itself is not ancient and just has an ancient setting, mm. it functions as a rave scale to show that the origins of the conflict in the now of the story is actually in the deep past, which mm. depended on different factors. Exactly. And as I said earlier, you have this double conception of the bulls and that mirrors mm. Cuchulain's triple conception. So it seems that this folkloric style tale is in fact a sophisticated illustration of the importance of law and good governance. And if the kings of Munster and Connacht have gone and sacked their poets, <laughs> then the channels of health and fertility must flow or the lamb will die. So if they can't do it through orderly channels, it's going to happen anyway through quite chaotic ones. And that's going to be to the detriment of human society, which is exactly what was happening in Moitura. Yes, wasn't it? Except they managed to actually solve the problem in Moitura. In the toy, they don't. No, and these two bulls are produced through this really anarchic conflict. Now, one more thing I was thinking about, though I'm not suggesting any direct connection, of course, but it reminds me a little of the presentation of classical Greek theatre. Mm. Now, there you had the epic tragedy accompanied by a comedy, often a satyr play, mm. that would have the effect of summarising and intensifying the themes of the tragedy that was going to be told. Yeah, uh, that's quite a good analogy for how the structure between the rave Gelta and the body of the toy. it's only an analogy. It is analogous, yeah. I wouldn't say one is the origin of the other. Definitely not. Mm -hmm. So it seems this story has even wider significance than just as an origin story for the bulls. Mm. Can you think of any more functions it might serve? Well, that's a little bit like asking <laughs> whom does the grail serve? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Well, one very clear function is that it is a link to a very central poetic tale type and we've already touched on it and that's the motif of this magical poetic battle or contest. Yeah, favourite motif of mine. Mm. There's plenty of examples of shape-shifting and, and some similar stories. There's the tale of Fintan MacBorkra from the Book of Invasions who arrives in Ireland with Kessa. Mm. Now, he survives a flood in the form of a salmon. Mm. He then turns into an eagle, then a hawk, and finally goes back to being a human uh, and lives over many centuries. And a very similar, in fact, suspiciously similar story, Hello, also from really. the Book of Invasions, is of Tuan MacCarroll, who arrives in Ireland with Partholone, which is supposed to be the second wave of people. And again, he survives by shape-shifting through many generations, and it's through them that the stories of the invasions are told, because mm. they were there. And then there's the I Am poetry of Avagin. It has the same quality. Now, he is definitely laying out his poet's authority and ability. Yeah, and in fact, I feel like particularly the first of those two Ruskada about the bulls has a very similar structure to the Duan Avergana, that I am poem attributed mm. to Avergan. And we shouldn't leave out the Welsh song of Taliesin, which mm. has a similar function. Oh, yeah. The battle between two magicians' motive is most completely found, I think, in the Welsh story of Gwion and Caridwen. Yeah. Now, Gwion is connected in that story definitely with the poet Taliesin. Yeah. And that connects him with Finn. Yes. <laughs> and Finn with Mongol. Yes, absolutely. And Do the, we have to say more? There are, in fact, echoes of that sort of poet's battle, that battle of magicians in the few extant Mongol stories that we have. Go and listen to the episodes on Mungon. But the important thing is that these motifs are linking the Toyn Bokulnia back to the deepest levels of the origin tales. Mm. 
So it becomes not just a battle between temporal dynasties. That's only the present layer of a much deeper process. Yeah, exactly. I think the main thing is this origin tale or time trailer. What it offers is the familiar advice, whatever you do, don't don't sack sack your your poets. poets. (laughs) And there's much more beyond that, of course. But let's begin our circling of the time. What, you mean spiralling in like a couple of ravens smelling battle? Or just, you know, dirty water circling the drain oh thank you (laughs) now there are a few personal questions i hope to answer during our explorations yeah one is kahulan a hero or is he just a spoilt brat (laughs) no comment on that and can i persuade myself to actually like him not necessarily (laughs) and the last thing is probably most important can i troll up any sympathy for deirdre we shall just have to see about that. It's <laughs> certainly going to be a long and winding road, but fun. I think it's going to be good fun. Now, it's possible. Probable, in fact. Yes, that our, our next episode will be our annual midwinter special, but we will certainly be ready to sink our teeth deep into the tracks of the Toyne in 2017. Mind you, sinking our teeth is a clue. And we're going to give you a feast of a midwinter episode. (laughs) It's already cooking. Yeah, it's on the boil. Until then, bon appetit. Thank you for listening to Agalof Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolda Obolacorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com